you will uh, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Jonah, we're going to be looking at Jonah chapter 4 this afternoon. I know uh, we haven't been in the book of Jonah here, I don't think, and uh, so maybe I'll just give a little brief rundown of how the book of Jonah goes. Um, I found this from a commentator that says, uh, in chapter 1, we see Jonah says, I'm not going to go to Nineveh. In chapter 2, Jonah says, I will go. In chapter 3, Jonah says, I'm here. And in chapter 4, Jonah says, I shouldn't have come. So if you remember how the story goes, uh, Jonah begins by uh, getting this call from God to go to the city of Nineveh. And Jonah says, I am not going to go to that city. He doesn't want to share the message of God with this wicked city. But uh, remember how he goes out to Tarshish and he goes out on the sea and God causes a storm to arise. And soon he gets toppled into the sea and a whale swallows him up and spits him back on shore. And Jonah says, fine. If this is how it's going to be, I will go to the city of Nineveh and I will declare your message. In chapter 3, he gets there and he goes through the city and he declares that really short message. In 40 days, Nineveh is going to be overturned. And you remember how God uses that short message to convert this huge city. A huge revival breaks out. And in chapter 4, we see Jonah's response, and he is not happy with what the Lord has done in the city of Nineveh. We'll see how God addresses the heart of this wayward prophet, and how God will address also the cynical attitude that can creep into us. So Jonah chapter 4, let's read the entirety of the chapter together, and then uh, we'll also say the confession dealing with Lord's Day 40. Jonah chapter 4, this is God's word. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? And therefore I fled previously to Tarshish. For I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. And therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city, and he sat on the east side of the city. And there he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade, till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a plan, and he made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. And so Jonah was very grateful for the plan. But as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm. And it so damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind. And the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself and said, It is better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? He said, it is right for me to be angry, even to death. But the Lord said, you have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored, nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left, including much livestock? from God's word let's uh, look at our confession then we 
use the Heidelberg Catechism as a, a summary of the faithful teachings we believe are given in God's Word. And uh, we're going to be connecting that this afternoon. So, Lord's Day 40, um, I will read the questions, and if we can answer together as we make our way through, that would be wonderful. Lord's Day 40, um, on page 891. What is God's will for you in the sixth commandment? I am not to belittle, hate, insult, or kill my neighbor, not by my thoughts, my words, my look, or gesture, and certainly not by actual deeds. And I am not to be party to this in others. Rather, I am to put away all desire for revenge. I am not to harm or recklessly endanger myself either. Prevention of murder is also why government is armed with the sword. Does this commandment refer only to murder? By forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder, envy, hatred, anger, vengefulness. In God's sight, all such are disguised forms of murder. Is it enough, then, that we do not murder our neighbor in any such way? No. By condemning envy, hatred, and anger, God wants us to love our neighbors as ourselves, to be patient, peace-loving, gentle, merciful, and friendly toward them, to protect them from harm as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. Well, this afternoon, I want to begin with a very well-known story, um, a story of the prodigal son. Maybe children, I'm going to tell this story. Maybe you can help me figure out which character is missing in this story. So the story of the prodigal son, as it goes, is a, a son who uh, has been given this large inheritance from his father. And uh, he asks for this inheritance early, and then he goes and he takes off. And he goes to a faraway land because the son wanted to live it up. He wanted to live for his own fleshly lust. He wanted to experience the world around him. And as you remember how the story goes, he soon finds himself living in a pigsty. He spends his whole entire inheritance that he has been giving. And now he has come to a point where there is nothing left. And he finds himself uh, just scraping by to get a day's meal uh, to provide for himself. And it's at this point when he gets to this rock bottom situation that you remember the prodigal son begins reasoning to himself. And he says, hey, my father, his servants are living way better than I am living now. And so he begins to think to himself, I, I know that I've blown it. I know that I've messed up. But perhaps if I start making my way back to my father's house, perhaps he won't treat me like a son. But maybe he'll take me in as a servant. And one of the most beautiful scenes in that parable, you remember how the father is pacing back and forth on the end of his property line because he is waiting for his son to come home. And when he sees his son on the horizon, you remember how the father uh, picks up his robes and he starts running out to his son and he grabs his son and he welcomes his son home. He brings him back and they kill the fatted calf. They throw a feast. They throw a party because the son who was lost has now been found. 
That is the story of the prodigal son. Did anyone catch which character am I missing in this story? Any of the children know which character is missing? All right. The big brother. Good job. Yes, there is another brother in this story. And you remember how the brother reacted when his other brother had returned home. There was an anger in the elder brother. And that character may very well be one of the main characters in the stories. Because Jesus is telling this parable to a group of Pharisees. That are wondering, what is Jesus doing? He is eating with those who are tax collectors and sinners. What is Jesus doing hanging around that crowd? Those people who are low lives. And there was an anger arising in the Pharisees' heart. And Jesus is telling this this story. And he is bringing this, this situation to bear on their minds of this elder brother who is angry. That the son who was once lost has now been found. And he is warning these Pharisees not to get this cynical heart in them. Where they are angry at the mercy of God. Because the elder brother thought to himself, hey, I've been working here my whole life. And I've never had a fatted cow. I've never had a party. What's going on? And Jesus is warning us as Christians that this cynical attitude can very easily creep into our hearts. And we can become just like that elder brother, when we see the mercy of God being displayed in this world. It can happen here, beloved. It can happen here in our church, here in our hearts, when we are looking at those in our family or we're looking at those in the world around us. It can even happen to preachers. As we see, Jonah has caught this syndrome, this this case. He has an anger that is stirred up in the bottom of his heart. So I want to deal with this passage looking at it in three ways. One, we're going to see the seething anger of this prophet. Two, we're going to see the blatant hypocrisy going on. And then finally, we'll talk about God's compassionate challenge to his prophet. So Jonah here uh, begins in this uh, seething anger. He's like a boiling pot. Look at verse 1 with me. It says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. God has just done a miraculous work of converting a a whole city through the proclamation of this prophet. And yet Jonah is not rejoicing. He is not celebrating. Rather, he is stewing in madness. I think it does us well to ask the question, Okay, why is Jonah so angry in this situation? Well, because Jonah knows the background and he knows the history of the city of Nineveh. We are told this is a great city and more that is known as a city that was great in its wickedness. From the very inception of the city of Nineveh, it began with a guy by the name of Nimrod, who you will read of back in the book of Genesis. If you know the story of Nimrod, you know that he was called a mighty hunter. Sometimes we have friends or family that are good hunters. We sometimes say, hey, you're like Nimrod. You're a mighty hunter. I think we should cut back on that compliment. Because uh, the phrase mighty hunter, a lot of commentators, when they're looking at this, uh, they say it doesn't mean that, you know, Nimrod was good at hunting. But rather, that this was a man who was a killer of men. He was an extremely violent man. 
It seems that the nature and the characteristics of the city of Nineveh are not too far off from its founder, Nimrod. It was a violent city. And Jonah knows that this very city has been pillaging and plundering through other nations. And that more, this city was going to be used as the Assyrian Empire was going to come and judge Israel. And so he knew of their wickedness. He knew of their background. In fact, in the book of Jonah, we read that the wickedness of the city was so great that it came up like a stench before God. And that's a very language that would be used with Sodom and Gomorrah. When the wickedness in that city was so bad, God would rain down fire and brimstone from the skies. This is a greatly wicked city. And the wickedness of this city is making Jonah fuming. He starts to think to himself, God, you can't be merciful to a city like that. And so what does Jonah wish for when he gets to the borders of the city, when he, when he declares that message? You can see that Jonah is praying that this city would go down like Sodom and Gomorrah. That God would judge the city for the wickedness and the crimes that they had done. To put a modern day equivalent on it. You look at Hamas. This terrorist organization. And you look at the killings that they've done. The butchery that they did to the Israelites. It can be hard to show compassion to a group like that, can it? And Jonah's heart is not too far off from our heart. God was telling Jonah to go to Nineveh would be like God telling you to declare his message of mercy and love to those who are part of Hamas, to those who were part of a terrorist organization. And God telling them, go and tell them how good I am, how loving I am, how graceful I am, how compassionate I am. And you can see why Jonah says, no, thank you. So what does Jonah do? He goes and climbs up on a hill. In verse 5, it says, So Jonah went out of the city, and he sat on the east side of the city. And there he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. You can see that Jonah is not wishing that this city would turn around. In fact, his sermon, 40 days, Nineveh is going to be overturned. You can see there's no, there's no message of here's how you can be delivered. Here's how you can be saved. Here's how things can go well for you. Jonah just declares this one sentence message. Then he finds a spot on a hill and he's waiting till Nineveh goes down and is burned to the ground. That's what Jonah wants. As we look at our culture, and we see a culture around us that is becoming more violent, becoming more antagonistic, becoming more hateful in their comments, and we see this, this wickedness going on, and there's an anger that begins in our hearts. Beloved, it's so easy for us to want to take a chair and to want to take up a seat right beside the prophet Jonah and no longer wish for the mercy of God to meet with the nations, but to begin to pray that only the fire and brimstone of God would come to their destruction. And we need to check ourselves. We would not take a seat beside this prophet. Because you can see very clearly in our text that anger is so, so destructive. 
It's destructive in our relationship with our neighbor. Here is Jonah. He's dealing with a city which has thousands of people. And yet, what is he wishing for? He doesn't want to share this message of hope. He doesn't want to share the gospel. He wants to bypass this entire nation and leave them to the judgment of God. You might think that hate doesn't do too much to those around you. Hate is not that effective to a brother or sister or neighbor down the road. But if you hate someone so much that you aren't sharing the gospel, you aren't telling them about the love of Jesus, you're basically signing off on saying, hey, I am fine with them on going down the road of destruction. Do you see how harmful this is? It's destructive to his relationship to his neighbor. We see that this anger is destructive to his relationship with God. God tells Nineveh, I want you to go, or tells Jonah, I want you to go to the city of Nineveh. Jonah, what does he do? He, he starts running the other way, booking a ship to go across the sea so he has to get as far away as he can. God comes to Jonah in, in our text and he says, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? How does Jonah respond? He doesn't actually even say anything the first time. He just marches away and storms off onto the hillside. It's destroying his relationship with his God. It's so poisonous. It's even destroying his attitude with himself. You see how careless Jonah is becoming with his own life. When he was on the sea, what did Jonah say? He said, just throw me in the sea. Like, discard my life. Throw me in the sea. That's fine. He was destructive with his own life. Twice in our text, Jonah is going to wish death upon his own life. You look at verse 3. Jonah says, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And verse 8, he says again, And it happened when the sun arose, God prepared a vehement east wind. The sun beat on Jonah's head, so that he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. This anger is so venomous, so poisonous. It comes down even to our own life where we begin to become careless with our own bodies catechism says what does god require in the sixth commandment says not only that i'm not to dishonor hate injure kill my neighbor by my thoughts words or gestures but moreover i am not to harm or recklessly endanger myself therefore also the government bears the sword to prevent murder you might not see that connection but Anger has such a destructive nature to it. Um, if you've ever seen the YouTube videos of a group called Dude Perfect, there is one character in those videos um, when they're doing the stereotypes of, of, of different people that they call the rage monster. It's a little bit of a comedy video. But uh, whenever this rage monster comes upon this character, he becomes extremely destructive. And he starts throwing an axe into the side of the pool or he just starts to, to, to throw tables over. And you can see that there's this connection between anger and destruction. I think when we are looking through this chapter, we can see quite clearly how destructive anger is. It's destroying his relationship with his neighbors, with his God, and ultimately is making him careless with his own life. So God wants to root out this anger in the prophet. 
I wonder, beloved, as we uh, begin here and we see how God is going to expose that and get rid of that, I want to begin by asking ourselves, do we see the seething anger in our own hearts? The signs that are in the prophet Jonah, do we look at our own lives and see some of those signs in us? Perhaps we're looking at certain groups of people. Perhaps we're looking at at, at certain uh, people that are in our own lives that we say, I can't be compassionate. I can't be kind to them. I can't tell them about the gospel because you don't know what they did to me. You don't know what they said to me. The way that they talked about me or behind my back. There's no way I'm going to go tell them about who Jesus is. Or maybe there's certain classes of people in our society that you say the sins that they're involved in and the type of of perversity that is going on there. They're so far gone. They're so far away from from the, the, the ways of God that there is no way I am going to reach out to them and tell them about the mercy of God. It's so easy for us to catch that spirit of Jonah which says, not them, Lord, not possibly them, not with their background, not with their attitude. Don't make me go to them. It's these people that God may be calling us to go reach out to. Do you see this anger in your attitude toward your neighbor? Do you see this anger in your attitude toward your God? Is there things in your life that that are making you say, God, I'm not going to talk about that with you. God, I'm not going to, to follow that order. Maybe you see the way that he's blessing the friends around you. He's blessing the people around you. But your life seems to not have so many blessings. And so you're angry at the providence of God. You say, God, if I was in charge here, if I had the reins, things wouldn't look this way in my life. And you're angry about the way that he's working. Maybe you see this anger in your heart by the way that you treat your own body. Maybe you're careless. And so you indulge. In certain pleasures, you indulge in certain foods or delights because, hey, you're not treating yourself as God would have you treat your life. God has such a compassionate love for his prophet here as he seeks to uproot this from his heart. That's what I want to talk about here in our second point, seeing the blatant hypocrisy. Jonah prays this very ironic prayer In verse 2, he prays to the Lord, and he says, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? And therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and a merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. It's amazing to think Jonah knows his theology really well. Jonah knows who his God is. And when he thinks back through the history of Israel and the way that God acted with the history of Israel, he knows the character of God. God was a God who was merciful to Israel. He did not require uh, kill their firstborn sons, but he saved them uh, through the Red Sea, delivering them from Egypt. We see God was a gracious God, providing them water in the desert, providing them food falling from the heavens. He was a God who was leading them all the way to the promised land. We see God as a God who showed this this loving kindness to his nation. How many times did they not rebel? 
How many times did they not go the other way? And yet God continued to chase his nation and love his nation and pursue them even in the midst of their disobedience. He was a God who was slow to anger with them. He didn't say, I'm going to start over and start with another nation or another people. He continued to work with the people of Israel. And so Jonah knows that the titles of this God, that he is full of compassion, that he is full of mercy and loving kindness, slow to anger, he knows that that is true. Twelve times will these titles be used of God in relationship to his people. Jonah knows his history, and he knows it from his own experience in his life. In this short book of Jonah, Think of the ways he has experienced these very attributes. The mercy of God to spare his life when he was in the storm in the bottom of the sea. The grace of God to to cause a whale to come and swallow him, to save him. The loving kindness of God. To not say, Jonah, uh, if you're not going to be happy sending this message to the city of Nineveh, if you're not going to be pleased to share the good news of the gospel, I'm just going to use another prophet. But God was showing his kindness, saying, Jonah, I'm still going to use you. You're still part of my plan. Jonah knew all of these titles very well. But Jonah wanted to say, God, I love these titles. I love these attributes. I want it for me, and I want it for the nation of Israel, but it stops here. And he wanted to put a border on the mercy of God. He says, it's not going to go as far as the nation of Nineveh with their monstrous history. Did Jonah have a right to put a border on the mercy of God? And the catechism says, Doesn't this, does this commandment speak only of killing? It says, by forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder, such as envy, hatred, anger, and desire of revenge, and that he regards all of these as murder. God hates this sin so much that he hates even the root of this sin. And so he's helping Jonah to realize just how much he has been given so that he can be freed to forgive the people of Nineveh. And God wants us to, to be able to forgive those around us too. You remember how Jesus would tell the parable of a master who had a servant and the servant had this massive debt. And he comes to his master and he says, Master, I can't pay that debt. Will you be willing to forgive me of this great debt? And the master in his grace said, I will forgive you of all of that debt. But you remember how the story ends with this same servant walking away from his master and then finding one of his servants. And this this other servant had a relatively small amount of debt comparatively in the story. And the same thing happens where this servant says, will you forgive me of my debt? This man says, there is no way I'm going to forgive you of this small little debt. And when he comes back to his master, his master says, you are a wicked servant. I forgave you this, and you are not willing to forgive this. How do we get out of this 
this syndrome of, of hatred, of anger, when we're dealing with the mercy of God. We're saying, I don't want to forgive those relatives. I don't want to forgive those people in my workplace. It comes when we realize just how big God's compassion and mercy is to us. When we see the large debt that he has forgiven us, when we see just how much grace and compassion he has had with us, and we recognize the magnitude of it, it helps us to realize God has forgiven us who are monsters just like them. And the only reason there's any difference between Jonah and Nineveh is because of the grace and mercy of God. The only difference between you and Hamas or any other terrorist organization in the world is because of the grace of God. And when we realize just how big that sum of forgiveness God has had with us, it helps us to show this compassion to the world around us. So Jonah is going to have God here come and challenge him on this front. We'll see in our final place here God's compassionate challenge to the prophet. Look at verse 6 to 9. God uses this exposing picture to help reveal the problem going on. And the Lord God prepared a plant and he made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. And so Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm. And so damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind. And the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. And then he wished death for himself and said, It is better for me to die than to live. God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, It is right for me to be angry, even to death. You see how God is exposing the sin in Jonah. God causes this plant to rise up. And for the first time in the whole book of Jonah, we read of how this prophet is finally happy. The plant comes and it provides shade from the beating sun. And so Jonah is exceedingly glad for the deliverance that this plant has brought. But God comes and then prepares a worm and the worm eats away the plant. And so the plant withers and all of a sudden Jonah is left in the beating sun once again. And now he has returned to his original state of being seething mad. You see how God is exposing the problem in Jonah. He's showing Jonah, you have more compassion for a plant. You want me to destroy Nineveh, and then you will be exceedingly happy. But if I deliver Nineveh, you are going to be exceedingly mad. And here for a plant, if I use this plant to deliver you, you are exceedingly happy to have the deliverance of that plant. But when I take away that plant, you are exceedingly mad. Jonah, don't you see your problem? You have more compassion for a plant than you do for an entire city. So God is going to show his own compassion and his love for this great city of Nineveh. He tells Jonah, Jonah, you did nothing to nurture this plant. You did nothing to grow this plant. But you think of the city of Nineveh, how I've been caring for this city. The people in the city, I've been clothing them every day. I've been feeding them the food that they have. Uh, I've been allowing them to experience uh, the joys of this world. I cause the sun to rise on the righteous and on the unrighteous. 
says, I've been caring for this city all this time for this moment where they might receive the gospel. You ever think about that? Why does God not just strike down the wicked like Ananias and Sapphira? Why does he not just rain down fire and brimstone like Sodom and Gomorrah? He could. But God is showing his compassion, his mercy, his grace day unto day. He feeds them, he clothes them, and perhaps it is because he is working to save them from their sins. And that's exactly what God was doing with this great city of Nineveh. God shows his great compassion for this city. He calls it a great city. We know that it took Jonah three days just to venture through the city, which tells us that the city is probably approximately 60 to 70 kilometers large in circumference. And a city of that magnitude could fit probably around one to two million people. And so a lot of commentators say that God is, is here building a case for his compassion. And he tells Jonah that there's 120,000 in the city who do not know their right hand from their left. Where many will say that's the number in the city, I believe this is God saying, these are the children in the city who haven't grown up yet to the age where they know their right hand from their left hand. And so God is building his case here for why he should show compassion to this city. Jonah, there's all these children. And yes, they're born sinners, but they haven't done the things that their fathers have done. God's compassion for the children of the city. He says, Jonah, if you're not going to be compassionate for the children of the city, at least be compassionate for the cattle. You have compassion for this plant. At least least have some compassion for the animals in this city. You're asking me to rain down fire and brimstone. He says, should I not have compassion on this great city? One of the things that I love to see as I was meditating on this text is God's great compassion is not just for the large scale, for these huge cities, for the metropolises in our world and, and the billions or millions of people in them. But God's compassion is not just on the grand scale, it's on the individualistic scale. And we see his compassion and his mercy does not change for Jonah. If you're anything like me, as you're reading this text and you're, you're looking at Jonah, you're, you're saying, come on, Jonah. You're angry at God. This, this is one of the greatest works in all of the Bible. The second greatest revival I can think of in the scriptures is Pentecost with 3,000 being added to the church. And God has just changed a city and brought them to repentance in him. And here you are and you're stewing mad over the greatest revival we have recorded in scriptures. I found myself getting angry at Jonah. And one of the things I delighted in to see was that my God's compassion and mercy that he has for the nations around him also continue to remain the same for Jonah. For God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And he comes and he is working so patiently and compassionately with this prophet. And he's saying, I'm not going to get rid of Jonah and use another prophet. No, I'll continue to work with him. I'm going to continue to deal with this heart problem. I'm going to continue to conform him into my image so that he might share my attitude for the world and my love for the world. And brothers and sisters, it's my prayer that God would be working on our hearts so that we share his love and delight in the world, that we would delight in the things of God that he delights in, rejoice in those things. 
God says that when one sinner comes to repentance, all of heaven breaks out in joy. Do you share such a love to see the gospel come alive in people's hearts that you break out in joy whenever you see mercy being received and grace being accepted? This is what we ought to be uh, living with in our hearts as we look at the world around us. The command to not murder is not just a negative, don't hate your neighbor. It's also a positive to seek their good and their well-being. Look at question 107. It says, is it enough then that we do not kill our neighbor in such a way? It says, no, but when God condemns envy, hatred, and anger, he is commanding us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to show patience, peace, gentleness, mercy, and friendliness toward him, to protect him from, such, from harm as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. So God is inviting us to share this heart then so that we would delight when we see the mercy of God being received around the world and pray that God would do just that. Now I think there's, there's some credit that can be given to the, the place of imprecatory prayers. When we see such evil being done in this world, it's not wrong to say, God, would you... Would you show justice here? Would you avenge for these crimes? As we're told, we are not to avenge ourselves, but the Lord is our avenger. And it would not be wrong if we saw in the book of Nineveh, the book of Nineveh, or the book of Jonah end with Nineveh being destroyed. That would have been in keeping with God's justice because it was an extremely wicked city. But a greater than Jonah has come, and a greater work than judgment has been done. For God to judge is not a very difficult task. When he flooded the world in the time of Noah, when he's dealing with the Antichrist, all he does is breathe. For God to do an act of justice is not very hard. But for him to do the work of salvation would require his son to go to a cross, to have his skin flayed with whips, to be treated like the worst monster there is on earth, so that you and I might receive his compassion and his grace and his love. And that has not changed, beloved, to this day, that God is continuing to show his mercy even to a thousand generations. He wants his mercy to be known far and wide as far as the, the waters cover the sea. He wants you to know that he is one who can forgive your sins and remove them as far as the east is from the west. He is a God who is abundant in compassion. As you saw Jesus who was outside of the city of Jerusalem just like Jonah. But he was not there praying for its downfall. But he was calling out to them as a mother hen calls to her young. That he would gather them in under his wings. That he would want all to receive the compassion and the love that he gives. We see that Jesus was one who was slow to anger. Even now, why is it that Jesus has not returned? It is not because he is not powerful enough to judge the wickedness in this world. It is because he is slow to anger. And with each day, he is continuing to shout out this good news of the gospel of his son. 
so that people might be saved before they perish. And he shows his loving kindness, which continues to lead us to repentance, to work on us even after we've heard a thousand messages and heard the gospel many times. He continues to show how good he is to us day by day. Beloved, let's not put this merciful, compassionate, loving God in a bottle and say, I delight in that. That's for me, but no one else. Let's see how great that magnitude of love is to us. And let's say, God, I want to see this go far and wide, that the world might not ultimately live in sin to their perishing, but that they would repent of their sins because we know a God who can turn monsters into saints. And we don't have to point at the world to say that, do we? We can just look at our own hearts. Take the Apostle Paul, who once in his life went around persecuting the church. So hateful against the church, he was there at the stoning of Stephen, and it says that he applauded it. God would take this monster who was rageful against the church, and he would interrupt him on the Damascus road. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And God would change his life and make this monster become one of the greatest beacons in the history of the church. For many in the church, they said, that can't be Saul. You're telling me Saul's declaring that gospel? Saul's the one that's, that's changed? It's spreading this good news far and wide? Yes, it was. Because we have a Savior who can change monsters like Paul and make him to be beacons of light. So may God continue to do that with the nations around us. And may he continue to change our hearts, which can be monstrous at times, to be more and more like our Savior's heart, who is so loving and caring that he wishes all the world not to perish in their sins, but to find that mercy and compassion and loving kindness in our God. Let's go to him in prayer and pray for that mercy to continue to spread. Father in heaven, we thank you for how your mercy is indeed more. Uh, it's new each and every day for us as your people. And Lord, we pray that we would not taste that mercy and then say that's, uh, that's something that we don't want to see the world experience. Father, show us that great hypocrisy, that that plank in the eye would, uh, would not uh, be something that gets in the way of your saving work. And so we pray that you would continue to work on our own hearts, that you continue to be compassionate and kind with us. And we pray, Lord, that that compassion and mercy would continue to change people around us, our, our neighbors here, uh, the people in the city of Toronto, the people in uh, Brantford, the people, oh Lord, in Canada, USA, and across the world, uh, people who may be involved in monstrous iniquities and traps, we pray that your grace would rescue them and forgive them. And we pray, Lord, for those who might be in this church now who are struggling to forgive uh, the monsters around them in their own lives who have done hurtful things to them. And we pray, Lord, that your mercy would so work on us that we would indeed want to share your love and kindness to them. Show us again how much you have forgiven us that we would be able to forgive those around us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.